Romans 1, 18, 21 through 25, and Romans 2, 3 through 4. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Good morning. Uh, uh, I, I had an opportunity this week, I was praying through and I was just thinking, and, and there's some groups in our, in our church I'm just so thankful for. I'm thankful for our deacons. I mean, those guys serve us faithfully. I'm thankful for our teachers as well. Um, a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to speak to our teachers at team night and just come alongside of them. And, man, what a blessing it is to have those men and women who I think responsibly stand in front of us as a church and say, thus says the Lord, and hold a high view of Scripture and teach us and study and are just exemplary in the handling of God's word, and I'm thankful for them. The message that I spoke to them, and just the way I, I kind of like to set your thinking for this morning, is I, I reminded them that teaching isn't safe. Teaching isn't safe. I mean, you know, if you're just a communicator, and you're just communicating something, and I know that still, you know, public speaking is still a, a great fear for many, and I get it, I... I stand here in front of you, I'm kind of exposed, every mistake I make, every word I butcher, every uh, example of bad grammar is an example for you to go, <laughs> that guy. But most of you are from East Tennessee and you don't notice, so it's okay. Um, I'm from East Tennessee too, I get to say that because I'm one of you, all right? As a communicator, if you just affirm people and engage them, they they kind of follow, but a teacher leads the learner into repentance, to challenging preconceived notion, to introducing new ideas, to, to messing with the learner's worldview. It's a dangerous thing. It's why in our colleges we introduce tenure way back in the day to our professors, was to protect the professor as they tried to help the student learn. And to do that, they challenged them with new ideas, with new thoughts, with critical thinking. Teaching isn't safe. It's certainly not safe when we look back at Scripture and we see those who teach God's Word. So what's, it's not safe for them. And so I asked them in this context, I said, do you think Jesus 
was a good teacher? And now they have to say yes, so they all do. Don't worry, our teachers think Jesus is a good teacher. And I, I, I said, I don't know that if you didn't know it was Jesus, and someone showed up at our church and taught for three years as Jesus taught, if we would necessarily say, that guy, that's a good teacher. I mean, throughout Jesus' three-year ministry, again and again, disciples would leave. I mean, imagine one of our study group teachers over three years, every semester they're in their study group, and a third of the study group is like, I'm out of here. And they never come back to our church. Where we go? Now, that, guy, that guy's a good teacher. And what if the people who stick with, with them, I mean, the most core followers, every lesson when he's done, huddle up and be like, hey, do you understand what he's talking about? He's always talking these sayings and stuff, and I, I'm, I'm not following him. And it wouldn't be until years later that those truths begin to make sense in their life as the Holy Spirit grew them and exposed the depths of that teaching. Where the religious people of day, I'm talking like the smart people, would say, that guy's just over our head. I mean, really, think about it. Would, would we celebrate that as a great teacher I think we'd struggle with it. I just do. I, honestly, I think we would. I, I think many of us, myself included, we, we seek teachers who affirm us. They affirm us and they relate to us. They make us feel better. I mean, honestly, if you just be real with yourself for a moment. Do you seek out the teacher and celebrate the teacher whose strengths are in your area of weakness and in their teaching, call you to repentance and steps of growth? Or do you seek out communicators whose weaknesses parallel your weaknesses and are able to make you feel better? That they can relate to you, that they're not, they don't have it together in the same way you don't have it together. I mean, when we think about our teachers, what I'm saying is do we seek repentance and growth, or some therapeutic encouragement and affirmation. I think more times than not, I seek the therapeutic encouragement. And what is hard is we consider the reaction in Scripture to the prophets and to the apostles and to Jesus himself. There was a consistent theme of repentance or rejection. There was very little in indifference. There, there wasn't much of the church of Laodicea. You remember that in the end of Revelation, we're talking about, or in Revelation 3, we're talking about the church of Laodicea that is lukewarm. They just are like everybody else. There's no difference. And I'll remind you as a setup to even what we're going to talk about today, I want you to be reminded of God's reaction to them. See, my grandmother, when I accepted a call to ministry, she, she set me down. She said, Daniel, I'm only going to give you one piece of advice. She said, if everybody likes you, you're doing it wrong. Now, my grandmother is a saint. In her word, 
is, means a lot to me. It might not mean much to you, so let me, let me take you away from my grandmother who her word is good, but it's not the Lord. And let me say the same thing as Jesus said it in Luke 6, 26. Woe to you. By the way, when Jesus gives the woes, it's on. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Not the true ones, the false ones. See, today I want to I I talk to you as a pastor to church. And I want to break down this text that we looked over last week. And I want to plant seed questions in your mind. I want to call your attention to our inconsistencies from this passage. I, I want to disrupt your worldview and give definition to the gospel beyond a slogan that fits on our social media feed. And so I'm going to ask you to do something I don't normally ask you to do. I don't want you to take notes, except to just write down questions or application. And I want us to do something that we see uh, modeled weekly here, I hope, but we see modeled all the way through the scriptures. I want you to take those questions back to your home, back to your spouse, to your friends. I want you to take those questions into your life group this week. And I want you to wrestle with these things. We're going to be a little bit of all over the place. We're going to jump around. But my heart is this. That for those of us who are in Christ Jesus as the church, we would cry out, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. That we would cry out, Lord, I love you, help me love you more. That we would cry out to the Lord, I repent, help me to repent more. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, give us wisdom and eyes to see past our culture, our tradition, our preference, our natural limitation, and through the supernatural work of your Holy Spirit, may we see your truth this morning and not suppress it. I pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Before we jump in, I want to I mark something. Last week, we introduced Paul's alarming big truth. It was the big truth that Paul is going to introduce the gospel to the Romans with. It was that the wrath of God is revealed against all who sin and suppress the truth. It comes directly from Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It is his opening truth claim. This is where he begins his gospel proclamation to the Romans. That the wrath of God is revealed, it is presently active against all who sin and suppress the truth. We took time last week and we 
we, we track that idea of all who sin and suppress the truth, and we reminded ourselves that is us. We sin and suppress the truth. Paul will go on later in Romans 3, he'll make that clear. He'll say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the all here who are under this wrath of God is you and me and everyone past, present, and future. We are all guilty without excuse. And as we preached through last week, we broke down 10 big ideas, implications of that one big truth. And if you weren't here last week, I'm really going to challenge you to do something. Go back today, go back before you meet with your life group and listen to last week's sermon. It's very important that you have context for what we're going to talk about today and those questions. And so go back and listen to it, tcbchurch.org, go to our messages, pull it up on the app. You can download our podcast, whatever you need to do, but go back and listen to that sermon. This morning, we're going to add two more big ideas. Just two. I mean, we did 10 last week, two this week, no problem, right? We got it. Before we do, I want to remind you of something. This week, in the state of New York, we passed an act called the Reproductive Health Act. This new law legalizes abortion until birth is long as the mother's health is in question. A term, health, that is not defined within the act, nor by the Supreme Court, or any governing situation. And for all of us who live with people who try to eat healthy, we understand our definition of health is fluid. One week, I'm not supposed to eat this. It will give me cancer. The next week, I should eat it. It will not and prevent me from having cancer. We move. The point is, what I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter if it's her physical health, her emotional health. It's really left up to the mother. And with it, all criminal charges regarding abortion were removed. And the governor said, today we are taking a giant step forward in the hard-fought battle to ensure a woman's right to make her own decisions about her own personal health, including the ability to access abortion. Now listen, I'm bringing this up because I want you to hear the reaction. That's the, that's the context for this morning. When the act passed, the room cheered. They applauded. Not one, not two. The majority of the room stood. They clapped and they cheered. A few days before this, Karen Pence, the wife of Vice President Mike Pence, and by the way, this is not a political thing. Just take the example, drop the political walls. Just that, that was a bad use of terminology there, wasn't it? Anyway, um, yeah. We're going to clean that one up for the second service. (laughs) Karen Pence, the wife of Vice President Mike Pence, announced that she would be teaching art twice a week at Emmanuel Christian School. 
Her decision was immediately met with criticism by many because Emmanuel Christian School's code of conduct requires students and faculty to live to moral standards that are in parallel with a maturing Christian. In other words, they don't hire LGBTQ faculty. In other words, they ban LGBTQ students and families. And by definition, their policy rejects LGBTQ. They do not accept them as maturing Christians. And a couple days after this, the great theologian Lady Gaga stopped her concert. And this is what she said to Mike Pence, who thinks that it's okay that his wife works at a school that bans LGBTQ. You're wrong. And thousands cheered and screamed. Go look, at, go look up the video. What she says, I get it, thousands cheered. She went on to say, you are the worst representation of what it means to be a Christian. And again, thousands clap and cheer. She said, I am a Christian woman. And what I do know about Christianity is that we bear no prejudice and everybody is welcome. And the room erupted in cheers and support. As thousands cheered the acceptance gospel. The gospel, not just according to Lady Gaga, but in truth, the gospel according to our nation. That Christianity accepts everyone. That the church accepts everyone. That God accepts everyone. And it brings us to an important question. Is the gospel message a message of acceptance? Not according to Paul. And that's the tension that I think we as Christians in our country today read back into the beginning of Paul's gospel proclamation to the Romans that I do not want us to overlook. And I want to challenge you to go back through the section that we reviewed last week and chase this big idea, this implication of our big truth. God doesn't accept those who sin and suppress the truth. Let me explain. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. All right, real quick, Paul's pride check, okay? Here's their pride check. Every one of you who judges, you read that in the, the text, that's you. That's me. All right? We're all guilty of this. Paul hasn't laid that out yet in Romans. He will get there. But we are all guilty of our judgment because our sin suppresses God in his way, his revelation. 
See, our sin proclaims my way is best. God's not. See, your very sin judges God. It judges his decree. It judges his way. And there's, a, there's a probably one of the greatest um, misinterpreted charges in Scripture is this idea that the Christian never judges. It's like we don't take an opinion. We don't take a stance. I want you to know when you read that in the New Testament, that's not the charge. The charge in the New Testament is that you are not the judge. You don't get to choose. You don't decide. You don't place verdict. However, God does, and you are called to be his ambassador. This is laid out very clearly just a couple of verses before in the back end of chapter 1 in in Romans uh, 132. Where those who gave approval are guilty of their sin too. Here's the point. If you give approval in your silence, you give approval in your voice, you give approval. By the way, that's a judgment. You've got to decide. There is an implied reality in which we must recognize our responsibility as believers is to proclaim the judgment of God. That doesn't make us the judge, that makes us the ambassador. And when we omit that responsibility from the believer, here's what we say. I am not going to take on the responsibility of the ministry of reconciliation. I have been reconciled, brought back in union with God, but I will not call others to be reconciled. God rightly judges. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience that he will render, verse 6, I'm going to jump down, verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. Verse 4 again, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Here's the point. Do you think God will overlook your sin? He'll just accept you as you are. Do you think that's how this is going to go? See, church, listen, we have given a foothold to a lie and a false gospel in our country and in our setting. That a loving and a righteous God accepts the sinner as they are. Yet Paul writes, they store up wrath for themselves. They do not escape the judgment of God, and there will be wrath and fury. I don't know about you, these are not like accepting words. See, accepting our sin Accepting you in your sin, verse 32, is guilty of sin. If I give approval of my brother's sin, I'm called out in verse 32. 
A holy and righteous God cannot give approval to your sin. He can't just overlook it. And so get this, accepting you and your sin is the suppression of the truth of who he is. That's not the gospel message. Church, hear me. God does not accept you. He redeems you. He redeems you. And that is the thought throughout Romans that is clearly proclaimed. Paul will use terms like transform. He will use terms like sanctification, which means to make you holy and righteous into what you have been declared to be in Jesus. In other words, he will make you as holy and as righteous as Jesus. He will not settle for you as you are. He will redeem you through the blood of his son. That is why Jesus, even in the, New, in the Gospels, as he's uh, preaching and he's teaching, he says things like, you must be born again. He says things like, you're going to have to die to live. It's why baptism is a picture of the old self, the full old self buried and raised in newness of life. Because God doesn't accept those who sin and suppress the truth. Our next big idea, because we are led to repentance, not acceptance. Verse 4, pick back up there again. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart. Broke down that word last week. I'll do it again. It means to be stuck in your pride. Unable to turn. Unwilling to turn. Your unrepentant heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, God's kindness... Is meant to lead you to repentance. And repentance, church, hear me, is not a decision. It is a heart. It is a heart. See, the New Testament knows no believer who refuses to live a life of repentance. Who, by the way, the New Testament knows tons of believers who be sinning all the time. Right? Paul says, the thing I do not want to do, I find myself doing. But the New Testament does not know a believer who in defiance is unwilling to repent, who does not have a longing to turn more and more to the image of Christ. Oh, we sin, we fall. But you want to know what a Christian looks like in the New Testament as defined by Scripture? They live with a heart of constant repentance. The New Testament knows no faithful church who accepts a brother apart from a heart of repentance. Because the New Testament church knows no description of God who does not lead his children to repentance. 
Jesus said it most succinctly. He said it twice, actually, in the beginning of Luke chapter 13. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. See, we are all without excuse and we are all suppressors of God. We broke that down last week and I want to take you back through that. But I want you to go back through with this lens of repentance. And and I want to try to expose that temptation, that foothold to a false gospel that saturates our thinking, that is all around us, that is cheering a false Christianity, and I want to expose that. I want you to go back through this text, and with that lens, I want you to just hear what Paul says. See, he goes on in the beginning, and he says, although God made himself known to us, we rejected him, we suppressed him, and we exalted lesser things, created things. We didn't acknowledge God, in other words. We didn't praise him and give him the honor he was due. And so verse 24 of chapter 1, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Our sin suppresses God. God has made himself known, and yet in our sin we suppress him. We say that God's way is not best. Our sin is a lie and an accusation against God. And so verse 26, for this reason, because we have suppressed the one true God, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations For those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. Homosexuality is a sin. That's clear. If you have a view in which you take scripture in its context and you take scripture literally, It's really not a debate. Homosexuality is a sin. It's an extreme sin. And it's communicated as such consistently throughout the whole thread of Scripture. And here it is used by Paul to illustrate the depravity of man. He even goes as far to do something we don't normally do when we talk about our sin. He talks about their dishonorable passions. Even the desire is dishonorable. I I want you to understand this is said in the context of exposing man's sin his propensity to sin the depths of man's sin and even the desire that is within us is a result of our brokenness Paul (laughs) clearly makes us understand in Romans that sin is not just the bad acts that we do it's who we are see He he uses terms throughout Romans like it's our flesh. 
he'll refer to sin as our nature. In Romans 7, 17, perhaps most succinctly and most powerfully, he says, sin dwells in me. Dwells in me. Our Old Testament teaches us that sin is in our heart. Our heart isn't led to sin. Our heart is sinful. And Paul's going to make this clearly known. And so as you're thinking through this, understand the depths of the depravity because that's Paul's point here. He says, look, it is a shameless act. It is an act of bold and defiant sin, unrepentant sin, against the very nature from the beginning of which God has set in part for the family, for marriage, for the revelation of the gospel. It is a shameless act, and it is contrary to nature. God has made himself known in homosexual, like all sin, says God's way isn't best. It suppresses the truth of who he is. And I think over the years, the church has, it's been easy for the church to scream repentance at homosexuality. Because for many years, it was low cost for the church. They weren't our family members. They weren't our kids. They weren't our friends. They weren't our workers. In other words, our, our co-workers. And so we use this, this example and we call this one thing, repent. But it is not the only sin that suppresses God. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do all to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Just have a moment. I want to walk through some of these really quick. A debased mind. I just want you to hear, frankly, yourself in these. A mind that is broken. Sinful. And by the way, the mind is at the center of our transformation. Paul will write to us as we go through this, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our covetousness, our greed. We have more income, disposable income, and more disposable time than perhaps any generation that has ever lived. Our malice, our ill will, our desire to tear down, our envy, our jealousy, our murder, our abortion, our strife, our troublemaker, our drama feeders and verbal fighters, if you will. Deceit, the schemers and manipulators. I feel like Paul, in that I should say I am chief among all sinners. Our maliciousness, our open rebellion, our unashamed evil, 
against another. Gossips, those who whisper and hide in the dark. Slanderers, those who defame and intentionally attack. Boastful, it really just means a pretender. One who acts like they got something, they don't. Inventors of evil. (laughs) We create ways to sin. Let me tell you what that charge is really saying. We are unsatisfied in our appetite to sin. Foolish. Solomon says those who love being simple, who celebrate their ignorance. Faithless, it means you can't make a covenant with them. Heartless, inhumane, no empathy or love ruthless void of mercy and it gets through this list and Paul goes on to verse 32 and he says though they know God's righteous decree they know what they should do they know who God is they practice such things knowing they deserve to die they not only do them but they give approval to those who practice them. And just so you can see the roots of the acceptance gospel as it it reaches with its tentacles to grab hold of our heart, just consider that reality. They deserve to die in their sin. Think about the way you would consider Adam and Eve. I mean, they did one thing. They just did one thing. Death was the consequence. Maybe that's not personal enough for you. Think of a disobedient child. Understanding in the Old Testament, under the law, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 21, verse 18, God writes, he says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his mother and father... The responsibility falls on them, shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son who is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And so verse 21, then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear Some of your parents are like elbowing your kids. God said that. And only if you understand our depravity and our sin do you think that can be right. See, not only is doing evil a sinful suppression of God, giving approval to such acts is a sinful suppression of God. I don't know what we're going to do, but I do know, I don't see how, listen, I'm I'm just going to make a flat-out statement. I don't know how you're going to vote for someone who's pro-choice, who advocates murder. I don't know how you do that. By the way, I don't know how you're going to vote for people, maybe on the other side, who champion sin as well. And you say, well, we're a two-party system, and I want my vote to count. I'm just going to be real honest with you. This isn't a political statement. This is a doctrinal statement. 
Your responsibility isn't to a nation. It's not to suppress the truth of who God is and be his ambassador. We are all aliens first, and we belong first to the Lord. And so let Christians stand up for what God's word has judged to be right and stop trying to do those things ourselves. But when we look at this, we have to realize in our approval how much we are suppressing the truth of who God is. When we stand by and we watch somebody next to us slander someone, you know, it's true, 20 some years of ministry, I have wronged people and I've had to come before them and say, I am sorry happened there's also been many times in ministry where I have no idea what's going on and somebody has really just came at me and they've said things that are just lies and just not true you know I know something that's never really hurt me or bothered me never thought much about it from them I kind of think it's part of shepherding a flock it's part of growth do you know when it's bothered me it's when leaders, mature believers, set by and don't say anything. That says something so much more about me, and it says something about where they're at in their maturity and where they're at in the proclamation of the gospel. And so listen, the church is not in error for calling homosexuality sin. It's not. The church is not in error for rejecting unrepentant homosexuality from the church. The church is in error when we choose to approve unrepentant sin for the sake of social comfort and acceptance. Repentance is disruptive. It's transformative. And over the years, the church has, because of the disruptive nature and messiness of this, we have sat quietly and we have accepted so many things that are wrong. We have watched our brothers and sisters divorce for reasons that are not biblical at all. And we've not only watched them remarry in something that the scriptures would clearly call adultery, but we married them. We have watched as gossipers and slanderers attacked one another and suppressed God and said nothing because they're our friends. Because we don't love them enough to call them to repentance. We look out at our families, our parents, who aren't discipling their children, and we say that's none of our business. See, we suppress the truth of God's love by avoiding repentance. And we deem our standing and our friendships our way greater and I just have a few moments I'm already kind of over but I want to make sure you see that I'm not just kind of putting this together okay so real quick I'm going to walk through scripture and we're going to close I'm going to let the team go ahead and come on up the New Testament church constantly held its people accountable to a heart and life of repentance 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14 the first charge, admonish the idol. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes about one who is in sexual immorality. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed 
from among you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with tradition that you have received from us. That's so different from our thought. Don't, don't, don't send them away. Don't keep them away. They, they may leave. We may not be able to influence them. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. There's that judgment thing we were talking about before. Take note of this person and have nothing to do with him. That he may be ashamed. Again, note the difference in this. Paul's not saying, well, well, don't make him feel bad. That might keep him from turning to God. We, we need to make him feel accepted and welcomed. No, Paul says, make him feel ashamed in their sin. Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is so important because for us, most of our definition of a brother means acceptance, unconditional acceptance. That's what the world has told us love means. But Paul's here, he's saying, as a brother, have nothing to do with him. 1 Timothy 5, 20, as for those, talking about the elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Titus 3, verse 10, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. God doesn't accept those who sin and suppress the truth. He, the church can't do what God doesn't. God calls us to repentance, to turn from our brokenness, and with desperation and saving faith, run to Jesus. He leads his people to repentance, not acceptance. And so the church that loves you, sinner, must love you as God has defined love. And that is to call you to repentance. Saving faith and repentance. Church, we have given a foothold to a false gospel of acceptance. And if we love, if we love, we care about the gospel. If we do not want to suppress the truth of who God is, we must call people to repentance, not acceptance. Would you bow your head? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit and not my words, Lord, I pray that if there is someone here who is in unrepentant sin, Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would know, they would, they would know that the church loves them. And regardless what sin they come here with, regardless how deep their depravity, that in repentance we welcome, 
with open arms and love as a brother, as a sister. But for the sake of their soul, it must be in saving faith and repentance. Lord, I pray that right now where they sit, Lord, your Holy Spirit would reveal the truth of who God is and would lead them for the first time in their life to cry out and say, Jesus is worth it. He is my Savior who took my sin upon the cross that through saving faith and repentance, I may be redeemed. Not accepted, redeemed. And Father, for us as the church, Lord, I pray you would give us boldness to proclaim the true gospel and not suppress who you are and have clearly revealed yourself to be. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, would you stand?